Hello, everyone, and welcome to this, the first free episode it's the free one. of 2024. It's the 2024 one. You, you made yeah. it through another year. Yeah, you've you've watched the Hootenanny, and now you're here. Jules Holland <laughs> is in the guest chair. Hello, Jules. <laughs> is it okay if I play a honky-tonk version of Here We Go by Ginseng, and we all put our head in our hands and we go, "That yes, that's fine. <laughs> We've got a fantastic trash shooter here tonight. We've got C6 Steve. Over in the corner, we've, got, we've you, got Jamie Cullum. There's a whole like ecosystem of guys yeah. like all living under one rock who you only see at New Year. You only ever mm. see in a Hootenanny related context. You know, what does C6 Steve do the rest of the fucking year? I, I don't know. I don't um, know. What does Jules Holland do the rest of the year? Uh, make noise complaints about his neighbours, uh, which is ironic. ironic. Yeah, that's yeah, right. That is ironic. Yeah, so, so congratulations to 2023 survivors. Um, mm. yeah. you, We're you, not you among it. them yet. We are recording. That's true. We could all die before 2023 is out, and this could be our final message, which is mm. potentially a really compelling idea. Do you want to a do like a Heaven's Gate of things mass suicide? Oh, no, probably no, not. I don't want to do that one. R- like, Riley poisoning the fine recult that he's passing <laughs> around the table. <laughs> what I do want to do, however, is say that this is going to be the first half of the episode. We're going to be talking about a few. Um, just a few of the things that have come into uh, the Christmas period for domestic sort of UK politics news. Uh, mm. r- do a startup, and then uh, I'm going to hand over to myself, uh, mm. and I will be talking to Dr. Gareth Fern about planning because every party, every political party, right? They say the thing that we're going to do in order to fix Britain is we're going to finally fix planning, and that's going to make all the investment happen. And we're, what we're going to talk about with uh, Gareth, and I've already had this conversation, so I do know that this does occur, <laughs> is establish, okay, well, what would actually, what kind of a plan of like a change to the way we plan towns and stuff, what would actually be enough to solve the problem that we've got? And I'll give you a, a, a hint. It's not, quote unquote, streamlining uh, this process. It's turning into an actual public service. So we're going to huh. talk about what that looks like. However, Interesting. However. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about um, a a hearty further congratulations to Rishi Sunak for single-handedly making global fuel prices smaller uh, and therefore uh, ensuring that his um, promise to voters to have inflation by sitting around and just waiting for it to do so itself will have worked. He's been pumping oil out of his back garden. That's what people (laughs) won't tell you about Rishi Sunak. He's been doing his best to fuck OPEC. Some some backyard fracking. I mean, this this is all like highly contingent on uh, the the Houthis and the Bab al Mandab. Mm. Uh, so maybe uh, fuel prices just go up a bunch. But uh, yeah, f- for now it seems that Rishi has like at time of recording been turning the big inflation dial down. Yeah, mm. that's right. Uh, but okay. working with the bed. Houthis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. It, although it is, uh, it is certainly. Uh, quite uh, interesting to see, and we'll sort of talk about this more in the coming weeks for sure, um, just how much uh, the global economy has been able to be disrupted uh, by people who, you know, have been, let's say, on the receiving end of quite a bit of uh, Anglo-American technology uh, flown and dropped by guys whose, you know, combat uniform includes a white Fendi belt. 
Yeah, there's there's a, there's a few like pinch points on this this international system of like trade and navigation we've built up, and this is this is a big one of them. You know. Yeah. Um, anyway, it, but also I think one of the other things to consider is like what we we haven't actually learned um, we haven't learned much other about the about the global economy or at least the UK's economy other than that a very small number of companies are able to just capitalize on supply shocks to fuck everyone else. Basically, there is yeah. the 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 way that our um, economy is set up, especially with ener- with our energy companies, is designed to look at supply shocks in the rest of the world and make sure we feel them ten times as much as we otherwise could. Yeah, can we can we cut in the bit of Michael Gambon and Layer Cake saying the art of good business is being a good middleman? Ta-da! <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I think this is this is what we what we have learned. Of course, is um, it wasn't. There is no evidence at all now that the infla- inflation is now falling. We can look back on it. Zero evidence at all that any sort of more generous social security spe- spending during COVID had anything to do with it at all, right? Mm, this was just course. fuel prices got more expensive, and then nine guys were able to turn generational wealth into bunker wealth because of oh, that. Fi- that's it. Th- five guys plus four more guys. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, the burger chain got really rich and also four other guys. <laughs> the burger chain got so rich they added four guys. <laughs> that's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They it created jobs at five guys. <laughs> See, we're not dead naming nine guys here. Well, speaking though, speaking of that though, um, well, I did naming? also I want to... Um, uh, talk about one of the things that we've seen in the distance coming down the kind of legislative pipe. We've talked about it on a few episodes, um, which is the new uh, the new guidance that forces schools to be mm. weird about gender with children has now Hello been released. Hello and welcome to the transgender half hour with Alice Gordor Kelly and friends. Yeah, so uh, th- this is kind of the like sum total of the like effects of having ruthlessly but incompetently politicized uh, the EHRC and a bunch of equality stuff is that now uh, Kemi Badenoch has has sort of like announced a bunch of guidance at schools which as you say tries to sort of uh, make life more miserable for uh, like trans kids in schools right um, but I, I think the thing the main takeaway from this right is Obviously, this is this is very very bad. It's gonna like immiserate a lot of people, um, but it, it strikes me that we're dealing with the same thing as the Rwanda deal, right? Where you're you're pushing up against the limits of this envelope of like what parliamentary democracy, as currently constituted, you can you can make happen within it, right? Uh, and you're trying to deliver the impossible, right? The the thing that they actually want to do instead of the admittedly shitty compromise that this is. Is you know to I think it was Janice Raymond who said like morally mandate transgenderism out of existence, right? And much like just putting people on planes to to Rwanda, you can't really do that legally within this framework that we've constructed. Uh, and I think part of the point of doing this is so that you can like push further and further and further up against it, so that once you're in opposition as a conservative party, you can then say from the right, well, this whole this whole envelope, this whole like framework of of liberal democracy uh, or like liberalism in the broadest sense, this is all fucked and it has to go so that we can immiserate these people properly. Um, and the thing is that's very compelling to people because the, like, the s- strictures of that envelope, of that kind of liberalism, do make everybody miserable, just not in 
that way. Mm. Right? It's, it's, and, we want to turn the incipient fascism into much more full bore. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, the, sort of the, the pressing question I submit to any kind of like trans rights movement or anything like that is whether this is the time to, and I don't really take a position on this, make like urgent common cause with the liberalism because the liberalism has a lot of establishment power and people are very fond of it. And you have these kind of like weird soft Tories who met like one nice trans person once and are like, well, I don't see why we should be doing the exterminate the brute stuff on them. Um, or whether you should be doing the more radical route, which is this whole uh, like system of, of liberalism is fucked from the left, and that's more emancipatory. Um, but in the meantime, I, I think it's it's this is best understood as an as a drive towards a like an insurgent sort of like anti-democratic way of doing this. Well, and I think we can look at this as well in the, and we'll, we'll clarify what this is, what the guidance yeah. mandates, and, and it's not a law, it's guidance, and it's guidance that actually breaks a lot of laws, uh, which is great. Um, yeah. See, so, so again, the envelope, yeah. it like pushes up against the existing constraints of the, you know, the system that we've built. But before We're we get to this- stuck in a big envelope. <laughs> before- <laughs> we need to get out of the envelope. <laughs> before we get to uh, the actual- actual description of um the of the the guidance it's it's pretty much what you'd expect right no social mm. duty to um facilitate no duty to facilitate social transitioning so just like wearing a different school uniform being called a different name and so on um a kind of duty to inform parents uh, as well as their children are like LGBT. flatly terrible the, but the the sole saving grace of all of this is that none of this is statutory um and schools school leaders are cowards on this largely um, but if you want to, you can ignore this, and I think some schools will, which all to the good. But also, right, we think about if we we've thought thought about like the roots of sort of specifically of English transphobia and mm. how it it, it k- kicked into overdrive in 2015, and what the function of all those columns was really, whether or not the people writing them knew that, was to get people emotional enough to angry enough about this um and to feel a sense of of fear about this enough Mm. that when it comes time to say well we need to repeal the human rights act so that um you know they're so that the children will be protected from the brutes um even though in many cases the brutes are the children right yeah because human rights act has quite good branding that's the problem and we need to do that right that they have spent the last eight years gathering that base of support and, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and not, and not just on what, this, like also on migration, also on like uh, prison stuff, any number of things. Um, and and I think the the push to like really do away with these these things of like of liberalism of, of like getting us out of the ECHR uh, and like uh, repealing the Human Rights Act. Uh, that's that's the sort of much darker even than this path. And I I feel terrible for the the children most of all because. Like you already, if you're a school child in this country, you already go to something called the like business schools grind set academy, right? Where they make you wear some kind of insane uniform, and you know, enforce. Well, you like, go to the hustlers academy, where the headmaster is Andrew yeah. Tate. You, you go to the hustlers academy, and they enforce like Victorian rules of silence on you. You you mm. can't piss at any point during the day because it will disrupt your learning. But um, even if you could piss, you'd have to go into a specific bathroom. Yeah, we've we've made all of that a bunch more humiliating. At the end of that, you get out of it. Uh, university is incredibly expensive. There are no jobs. 
Mm. And then on, on top of all of that, we're going to get your ass with the climate. I mean, it's... Well, and it, also the school might collapse on you and kill you, of course. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so absolutely, absolutely miserable existence, even if you're not trans. School's um, not transphobic. It collapsed and killed all the children equally. But the, the other... The <laughs> Try other, and gender the, a corpse. The, 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 the like, sole trans, uh, trans student escapes by being sent to the, like, special trans portaloo outside while the entire school <laughs> collapses. <laughs> The the other thing I want to note, just going coming back to the guidance itself, mm. is how fucking weird it is. Yeah, yeah, it is weird. One of mm. the one of oh, the yeah. it, the things it mandates is that if a student has a preferred pronoun, you can't, you're not being forced to use it. But also, it would be bullying to use the wrong one, so you should just always refer to them by name. It's weird. <laughs> it's so fucking odd. Yeah, I mean, the, part of it, part of the weirdness of this is, as you say, the compromise of abolition not being able of to, pronouns in general. Yeah, of, yeah. of like b- not being able to do the stuff that you really want to do. I think part of it is also that the government here has been radicalized by some very, very strange people who have like imported wholesale these like strange concepts of like you know their idea of what biological sex is, for instance. And so you have this guidance that is full of the, you know, the, the phrase biological sex in reference to stuff that like doesn't matter, would never come up, would never occur to anyone other than people who are already obsessed with it, you know? Yeah. Well I've always long thought this about all of this weird transphobia stuff is that the, the best the best argument against it is just how weird it is. It's mm. it's just how straightforwardly just odd it is to care that much about what someone else is doing with their genitals. How just like obviously perverse it is on the face of it. Like you can yeah. make any number of moral arguments or whatever, but I feel like the one that cuts through the most just seems to be just like these people are freaks they're so obviously freaks like do we need to go any further than that <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely um and i i, I mean i don't i'm sort of, of of two minds about this right because i i i know we've said before that like the the key to sort of political success on this one is to be normal right and i i yeah. don't think i don't think normal has to be like strict normal right i don't mean that in a, like an assimilationist way I just mean that, like, however weird and fucking queer and, like, diverse in your, like, presentation of it you want to get, it will always be more normal than anyone who is like, yeah, no, we need to be doing, like, genital checks in, like, primary school bathrooms, you yeah. know? Like that, yeah. It, so this is what Maya Forstater said, welcoming the guidance. She said the most important takeaway is that the normalization of so-called social transition, lying about children's sex, is indefensible within a school environment. To which I just have to say, well, wait, why, why, why do you you need to know that? Yeah. Again, this is a woman who is like famous for being fired, um, which is an incredible career sort of parlay there. Um, and I, I just, I did. Why, why did they need to like justify themselves to you? Mind your own business. Well, the and the other, the other note on this as well, right? You said this is a compromised position because this is mostly, um, as I understand it, Jillian Keegan, the the um, education secretary, rather than Kemi Badenoch. And now, because Kemi Badenoch, it's it's interesting to see, like Kemi Badenoch is now being shown by the right of the party as like, oh, this is a big loss for her. Right, because she had to do the she had to do the impossible, which is legislate the legislate like sort of thirty three percent of the Tory the sort of this specific kind of Tory dream, right? Of um everyone of boys wear blue, girls wear pink, 
everybody there are no immigrants ever and trustonomics is back right yeah b- being being a tory minister is miserable because you just get sacrificed on the altar of some like impossible goal whether that's uh you, that you have to do like considerable shitty things to try and achieve and then it doesn't work like whether that's pretty patel or suella braverman on on like stopping the boats or migrants uh or whether it's kemi badenoch on this even the dean dory's on the online safety bill something else which being was impossible. Dean dory's though yeah, right. this is the thing, right? Because we we did the live show and we uh, we read her book, and the only interesting thing in Nadine Doris's book is in the course of all of this like sour grapes office office gossip bullshit. She goes, "Oh yeah, by the way, Kemi Badnock is being groomed by like a cabal of hard right Tory like." dark arts operators to run as like future leader based almost exclusively on uh like a transphobic culture war and she writes that down and she's like yeah oh and by the way uh fucking uh mps having sex on pool tables or whatever so like the fact that it doesn't interest nadine doris and she just mentions it in passing to me speaks much more highly of its sort of like uh Mm. veracity you know well, yeah, because I mean, we've talked before about how this stuff is kind of alienating to a lot of the electorate because it is it is at the end of the day freak shit. But it's also mm. like as much as like it's not unusual for the Tory party to pick up on any culture war issue in order to like use it to push things further to the right. It is quite alien to a lot of the Tory party who are just they're just right wing in a very different way. Like this isn't if the average Tory MP, this isn't really what you got into being a Tory like we mm. kind of were alluding to it earlier like a lot of tories are like weirdly liberal about a lot of things because they're, they're kind of like yeah be gay just don't pay tax like that that is kind of like a strong <laughs> tory bent like yeah yeah and, well, i love to be at the no tax orgy well that's um, that, that that's the the marx quote right is that the end of the day the english tory is only enthusiastic about ground rents yeah, like it has a bit of a like, and all of the most vocal turfs are kind of like more like lib- like liberals in the kind of in the more American sense of being like yeah. kind of second wave feminists who've like gone insane, and so and that's like a really weird marriage because most of those people aren't Tories; they're kind of more like Blairite Labour people uh, in the vague sense. It's, it's, so it's a very weird. It feels very sort of American. Yeah, and there's 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 some other stuff going on here too. With um, so so Scotland has like now dropped the Scottish government has now dropped its appeal on its uh, gender recognition bill. And because I, I have this like heterodox mm. opinion that this is good because the gender recognition bill was a waste of time, it was never going to pass anyway. Um, but the point of doing it was also to like push that sort of constitutional envelope in a kind of like orthogonal liberal direction of Scotland mm. should be an independent country, right? Yeah. Um, and you know now now that's sort of been abandoned uh and yeah i i i find sort of the political division on that quite unusual you know that you, you have these sort of like smp sort of left-ish liberals um and then uh like who who were sort of determined to push this thing forward um having had this like really long bullshit parliamentary like uh like passage with it um and then, and then you have like Scottish Labour, dismal as they are, going, uh, "No, this is not only will we not do it because we're like always pandering to transphobia, but we specifically won't do it because we love the envelope, and this envelope has like Scotland and uh, like the rest of the UK in together, and we're not we're not sort of tampering with that. We need to keep Julie Birchill in that envelope. She exactly, she cannot be released. Exactly. Yeah. So it's uh, th- this is the thing. I, I, I sort of one of the things about that bill that I sort of 
was against was I resented being made into a constitutional issue like that. Um, mm-hmm. and, and now it seems that I'm, I'm destined to be a constitutional issue either way. Um, and I think when the Tories are in opposition, as seems likely, uh, and they're, they're sort of like trying to do the, we should burn this whole system down because it doesn't work and makes everyone miserable from the right, that's going to be a lot more dangerous for me than whatever like legislation they're doing, especially when they have a Labour government as malleable as Keir Starmer's is going to be. Yeah, because they're, they're, they are going to, any outrageous claim they make, I'm sort of putting my marker down on this, any outrageous mm. claim they make about a group Labour considers to be unimportant, which is a very high number of people, whether that's oh, ethnic yeah. minorities, yeah. LGBT people, the left in general, whatever yeah. you want, anyone who isn't almost a everyone. Voter, yeah, almost yeah. everyone, is that Starmer's instinct every single time is to say, well, act- actually, I think you'll find that we are going to crack down harder and he's going to try to outflank them to the right every single time. People yeah, have accused my government of being malleable. Well, Mr. Speaker, I would like if the Prime Minister thinks I'm made of such a fine clay, then I will I will I will repost to him by baking myself in a kiln. This will be broadcast <laughs> live on TV. I will become so firm, I will become brittle, and I will have Rachel Reeves apply a fine bone china glaze to me so that I cannot be bent or moved in any way without shattering. I think we can get Roschmitz to do this. Yeah, no, but I I think the thing is too that um, um, it, it, this sort of like speaks to the general arc of British transphobia, where like uh, it, it's more dismal, right? The American culture war stuff, like they, they've tried the, the the Tory right have had these like dalliances with mass mobilization, and like turfs are always trying to like radicalize each other to like you know grab people of suspicious genders in bathrooms and stuff. But it doesn't really translate to the British mindset as much, I don't think. Um, and part of the reason why is that like in the US, right, because you have this kind of like interventionist already radicalized heavily armed in places kind of like movement ready to go as a trans woman i would worry about getting like murdered getting murdered murdered uh whereas in britain i mostly worry about getting socially murdered um we we have had an actual trans murder right with the sort of like consequent horrible press around it and that's that's thrown all of these people into kind of disarray they don't know exactly how to feel about this kind of like maybe matthew shepherd moment that's happening but meanwhile they're all quite content for the government to sort of like look at you know uh, a teenager who is who wants to transition and sort of hand them the the service revolver with one bullet and a glass of whiskey you know and be like well just 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 do for yourself yeah. you know do what co- we're not going to do it we're not going to deputize anyone else to do it yeah because we're we're repulsed by that to an to a point like at least now at least at the moment we don't want to hear about like sort of uh interpersonal rather than state violence against trans people. So one of, one of the other things I, I think is sort of, that I've noticed about sort of driving British transphobia specifically is how much of it involves deference and sort of mm. people giving improper deference. Like, for example, a lot of people are like, well, I didn't have an opinion and I saw how poorly J.K. Rowling was treated, you know? <laughs> <laughs> or, I, or oh well, yeah. students should be obeying, you know, the their schools, and and you're able to you're able to make this a kind of you're able to make this an uh, you're able to shoehorn gender into lots of other issues around hierarchy in the ways that are commonly understood by people, right? Yeah. You're a, you're able to say oh well, people are being it's I don't have any problem with it. They're just so disrespectful, or I don't have any problem with it. Just children need to fall in line because how much of the how much of the I think one of the most dangerous bits of the school's guidance is all about informing parents because it comes back mm. to, well, parent, oh, but parents should be in control of their children. And so yeah. I think that, that here, one of the things is 
there's no, there's a less of a sense, except among like the big vocal mouthpieces of this whole movement, that there's like there needs to be an arm, some kind of like you know um, immediate uh, political mobilization, and more of just a sense of tut tutting that people are not respecting their sort of social betters or people who they should be deferring to in the hierarchy. Yeah, yeah, and, and as as with the left more generally, the only tool that they have for that is we need to make your life sort of like in the in the in the round more miserable. You know, that's why that's why it's in schools because there because in British society there there are. There are not a there are a lot of institutions that can compel you in very specific ways, but some of the only institutions that can compel you to like dress differently other than jail are schools. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's where the tool is to sort of force people to be deferential in the way that they want. And that's why I think it has this kind of resonance, but the resonance is so sort of prickly and resentful and not sort of mass mobilizing. Also, because as as with uh, the migration stuff, it's futile. You, the, there is like a demographic thing happening that you, the government is sort of like powerless to stand athwart. Where it's like migration will increase, uh, trans people will continue to exist, and you can try and sort of like force those things not to happen. But you're kind of like you're, you know, it's like uh, forcing back the tide. You know, it, it is. It is the, the English governments have a long and proud history of instructing their soldiers to try and fight the sea. Mm. Well, yeah. I mean, I think you're right. You're completely right in that sort of like, basically, if you want to make anything into a big social issue in Britain, you have to fundamentally make it about whether it's cricket or not, right? Like that has mm. to be the, it has to like play into that kind of sense of social hierarchy or whatever. Because if you go to a bunch of like, to, like Britain is not like a kind of Puritan founded country in the way that America is, where people are scandalized by stuff in the same way. Like you can't shock a bunch of Tory backbench MPs by going, by God, there's a bunch of boys at this school dressed up as women. Like that's just a rugby team at a social. Like, do you know what I mean? Like it's not. <laughs> <laughs> like that's not shocking to people you have to like create this sense of it like undermining the fabric of society somehow yeah absolutely so we move on to uh to a startup or shall we talk about the um I new tory start, losers so. uh, a little, a, a palate cleanser yeah why don't we start let's kick off the year with a startup we know the tory losers caucus it's like the, the they're the trying to create the they're, they're trying to create a sixth family that's like socially liberal and has a constituency of exactly zero people. Uh, the the, the, the oh. socially liberal Tories are such sweethearts. I can't wait for them all to like defect like defect off to the Lib Dems or something. Immediately fractures. <laughs> yeah. you, you, exactly. Listen, I you know my feelings about Penny Morden, right? And I, I hope that she remains politically harmless for many years to come. You know, the um, I, it is very funny though seeing like after the experience of the last several elections, seeing Simon Fell, the MP for Barrow and Furness, saying elections are won in the centre ground, and after a divisive few years, the people <laughs> of Britain are craving a calmer, more pragmatic politics. It's like no, they're not. They want fun. They want the fun, yeah. and it's like we are going to do no fun. We're going to be the and they're desperate for the fun to come back. If if Corbyn had had jokes, and he kind of does have jokes, but if, if Corbyn had been like more of a Boris figure who was a laugh, I think we would be living in a kind of socialist utopia at this point. Yeah, I, I honestly, that is my most crank opinion, that if Jeremy Corbyn had had more of a like Bernie Sanders energy, if mm, he'd have just yeah. refused to answer the stupid questions and called people fucking cretins live on air... <laughs> I, I don't know. I think it could have gone differently. Should have listened to us. Should have listened to mm. us about bringing the nonce detector into the comments. <laughs> it's going beep, 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 beep. I'm sorry. <laughs> my, my honorable friend is being beeped at by the nonce detector. Look, I don't, I can't retract it. It's the nonce detector. <laughs> 
I would like to advance that my honorable friend has dropped his pocket. <laughs> uh, all right, let's let's talk about Honu, and then um, I'll hand off to myself in the future past. They can call you Honu. Yes, <laughs> yeah, it's Honu, and they're calling Honunia. Milo Honu. That's all right. Uh, what do we think? Come on, hit me. Honu. Honu sounds like the name of an individual robot to me. Yeah, yeah. Like a Sony Ibo. Uh, it like sounds like something Hussein would talk to me about, and I wouldn't be completely listening. <laughs> Boston Honu. Boston Honu. It's actually a, a new paradigm that will underpin an AI-first economy that's also entirely new. Oh, fuck. If it's a new paradigm, I, I feel bad for making fun of it now. Because like, oh. the thing in my uh, about me is in my daily life, I can't get enough paradigms. Yeah. Big paradigm head. I, although paradigm. I, I think sometimes if someone's too into paradigms, it can be a, set, a like show that they're kind of a bit right wing. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Listen, okay, a lot of paradigm heads are right wing, but I don't accept that that's determinative. Uh, yeah. So, no, it is the next generation of business, they say, will be built on AI and inspired by human passions. We sit at the forefront of what is possible. <laughs> sorry, sorry, inspired by human passions is yes, mm. inspired by human passions. I'm, I love Your to be inspired. Human feelings. <laughs> this does read like it was I'm written a by an man. AI. I'm inspired by human passions, <laughs> as we all are. But I, but I think there's a more important issue here, which is that there is a paradigm, shall we say, shifting. <laughs> the vibe shift. This is the vibe shift, though. Mm. Yeah. Well, this is they're trying to do another one. Uh, which is they're pioneering a new paradigm that lays the next generation rails for autonomous agents and transforms the entire economic e ecosystem. If Corbyn had like got up at the dispatch box and said, like, Mr. Speaker, vibes are fucked. The vibes have shifted. Again, socialist utopia. Yeah. <laughs> and, and transforms the entire economic ecosystem into a smart connective tissue. Yeah. We will forever transform how all businesses work with whole new autonomous agents working in symbiosis with humans um, at the right time and place. It's like the universe conspiring to make your business the best it can be. I, the, 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 again, there's something about the way this is written that I can't quite put my finger on. Between human passions and the universe conspiring to make your business better. Uh, it, it's just kind of like someone has read a lot of e &M Banks before sitting down to write this. I think the universe conspiring to make your business the best it can be is kind of one of those, um, an extension of a kind of multi-billion year Whiggism that a lot of AI people have, which is that... <laughs> the moral arc of history may be a billion years long, but it tends towards justice. Well, it tends towards making towards your business... business. Yeah, it tends to, well, it tends towards a technological singularity. So it's like they say, their argument basically is that, well, if there was enough hydrogen in the universe that it eventually collapsed into other elements and eventually out of that arose life and eventually out of life arose sentient life and sentient life inevitably created ai oh, which just. means that god is real yeah. we just haven't invented him yet and he's there to make your drop shipping business way better and more automated <laughs> awesome did you ever yeah I'm, I'm thinking about the climate again sorry um, yeah there is no god but allah and shopify is his prophet <laughs> <laughs> so the uh this is called they call it the os for an ai first economy where the idea is that you, in order to make a business, you need people. Uh, sure. What if for, for now? Mr. Yeah, well, exactly. What if yeah. you can make an entire business that's just AI agents, mostly working with one another and other people's AI agents? Oh, so it's like an ant farm of bullshit, and you just look mm. into it and be like, oh, well, it's just probably making money. 
Ant Farm of Bullshit, they're the ones that did the cover of Smooth Criminal. <laughs> so, um, CEO Imad Riachi says the idea for Hochu was inspired by watching his father build a small business while he was growing up. He said he saw his father make many preventable mistakes and eventually this, realized- This kid just like watching his dad start a business selling like printer toner or some shit like that, and he's like, yo, this guy's a dumbass. Yeah, Why isn't he building an ant farm? It. Yeah. His 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 spreadsheets are all over the shop. This, <laughs> yeah, his 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 uh, his ROI ratios are fucked. Imagine imagine like inspire. Imagine being this kid's dad, and then you see he's like giving interviews, and he's like, "Yeah, my dad was such a fucking dipshit at running a business that I thought that uh, like predictive text could do it better." This is in an interview with Precede. Now, there's very little uh, information about this business otherwise. Otherwise, I just thought it was interesting because. The the drive right is it's it's the same drive that happened with like you know the the steam loom right which mm. is to create more things more quickly automate more and the more things are automated then the more value the people who own the automators take so the play here is to automate everything and then claim the value from all businesses or at least all back office functions something something about the tendency of the rate of profit to something yeah. Um, so- Riachi says he sees a future where highly autonomous businesses are built on top of the of the infrastructure. But remember, like we never talk about economic planning, right? It's just that talk, you yeah. can never talk about a planned economy, even though we do live in a planned economy. It's just the planning is slightly decentralized. The the envelope again, you know, the the, the back of the envelope uh, like uh, calculations, you know. Uh, Please stop writing on the back of the envelope. It hurts. <laughs> and so what what you're basically saying is look we want to and this is something we even saw in the henry kissinger article the goal here is i want to build an infrastructure that seeds a huge amount of economic planning to an ai yeah you, you'd like stake as much of this territory out as you can uh, ahead of time as you say building a high level autonomy into businesses is really going to pave the way towards the democratization of business creation and entrepreneurship across the world but does what well, basically, what's stopping someone who, li- like, I don't know, a subsistence farmer, for example, in yeah. West Africa, what's stopping them from also living like the head of HSBC is that it's too difficult to recruit a human resources department. But if, <laughs> if that person is able to create a business um, just of AI agents, then what's going to happen is all of the people who are that we're, that the world will become a perfect meritocracy where everyone is ranked by their ideas because all execution just happens via autonomous agents and yeah, so long I, as you're good at spinning them up and instructing them and you have a good idea then we will actually live in a kind of libertarian utopia of constant contracting a lone subsistence farmer who employs an hr person so that he can play it complain about the hours his boss is making him work but his <laughs> boss is also him <laughs> yeah I do, I do all of my banking with kenyan subsistence farmer uh, goes That's on the right. goat standard so i, I, <laughs> very I feel this is very important because i'm an entrepreneur but i feel like creating and running your own business is a form of expression and i'd like to give many people that uh, that voice is possible it's vibes it's all vibes yeah yeah, everyone should have the chance to be a kind of like bullshit entrepreneur. And this is the thing, right? The the way that these guys live as as like startup people uh, in like the Bay Area or Miami or whatever, it seems so shit. Like uh, it, luxurious at times, but also like deeply, deeply miserable. And I don't just mean in in terms of like being crammed into like a you know some tiny apartment uh, and then going out to like do coke with VCs. Uh, and then eventually one of them gets like stabbed in a just, like polycule bullshit thing. No, what I mean is that like the whole lifestyle, even the successful ones, right? 
to say that like everyone deserves the chance to live like fucking I don't know Mark Zuckerberg or whatever. So like, I've seen the way Mark Zuckerberg lives and it looks fucking awful. What if I don't want to? What if I don't want to like turn my subsistence farming podcast into into sort of like an international bank uh, so that I can go buy a sort of like survivalist bunker in Hawaii? Well, I think the other thing that they're saying right is that. Um, is that a business, whatever it is, the ultimate form of self-expression, the ultimate form of self-actualization is to be a CEO. And so long Jeff as Bezos is the most self-actualized man in history, I mean, he might is, believe this of himself. I actually, I, I mean, that is a man who is of all of the CEOs, he is the closest to Buddha nature. Um, <laughs> he says, but he says, bold. We'll be moving towards AI-first businesses, which pave the way for an AI-first economy. And I see a world not very far from today where a non-negotiable chunk, non-negligible chunk of GDP is created by entire, highly autonomous businesses. Um, so basically, the idea is you can create a business without employees just by having agents. We've 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 got the car on this highway, right? And it we're pretty certain if we just take our hands off the wheel. Listen, it's been going far enough. It's it's fine. Someone will probably invent cruise control. Like as it's being driven. Yeah, don't worry about it. And yeah. they say, when you're building autonomous agents or autonomous businesses, you need to optimize for a certain objective. And it's going to be very interesting to see the governance shifting a bit and having stakeholders have much more of a say in the value alignment with what these businesses mm. are trying to create. I love it when stakeholders have a say in the value alignment, personally. This whole thing reads like it's been written by an AI. I'll say that. He, I think this Possibly guy might have already AI'd himself out of existence. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he is an AI. Maybe it's like a Blade Runner situation where he doesn't even know he's an AI. Mm. Well, and, and so the, um, yeah, so it, we, we have the, the AI creating the other AIs that are going to take over the economy. But the, I just find it very interesting that the, the ambition expressed here, right? The ambition is look, we could have, um, the entire competitive economy totally just have no people in it. And instead there's just CEOs and stakeholders. And it's this dream of a perfectly frictionless, humanless it, it's like a you know, like an assembly line or like a clean room with only robots in it. Yeah. And also again, as with all this AI stuff, it comes down to like like in so many cases, it's like this is a thing you could just do with a computer before. This is like these guys who have businesses on like fucking like Redbubble or Shopify or whatever, where they just like put a load of drop shipping stuff up for sale where they get a percentage and then they just list it on other websites where people end up buying and then they just make money for doing nothing just by like hosting a website. But this what is if the entire that. economy was run on that logic? Well, you'd get a lot of t-shirts about welders who were born in July. I'll say that. <laughs> that will be the only form of clothing. The army will wear that. That will be the uniform. <laughs> what, what about food production, all this stuff? AI. And, mm. and how do you get it? You, you influence it. You interpret it. You mm. know how to tweak. You, a secret priesthood knows how to talk about it. Oh, uh, yeah. If we're going to go wanna, gnostic. Yeah, God if you, damn it. The secret priesthood again. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. If you want to... if you can, I think you can link this company... And that Henry Kissinger article from la from like well later earlier this year from it's us a real, last real, year from like your poll uh, yeah sort of thing which for is us. which and that's what because this is what this is the practical application of what that would look like which is we it's this is this is someone saying you wanted to hand over control of the economy to computer okay hand it to my computer or I'll build the computers you can hand it to um, and then all of a sudden. Instead of just, it becomes about how well can you interact with the distributed God, basically. That's the, again, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen. I'm saying mm. that's the belief yeah, system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the economy, yeah, it's all on computers now, isn't it? Yeah, it's not a shop. It's just a computer. You don't go to a shop, there's just a computer down the street and you go and log on. <laughs> the distributed God loves me because it gave me a, a t-shirt that says, don't mess with a welder born in January. 
Yeah. And, though I know, and though I neither know how to weld, nor was I born in January. Of God loves me, this I know, because chat GPT told me so. It, it, it's a mysterious act of divine love and grace, and I, I, I myself feel that I'm sort of one of the elect in this. Anyway, anyway, uh, that's, I think that's all for Honu for today. Um, AI army with crap at GPT. <laughs> uh, anyway. That's, that's all for Honu for today. Yeah. I'd now mm. like to hand uh, to myself in mm. the past from my perspective, but the future in your perspective for a little talk about planning. A little talk about planning. Hello, everyone joining us from the first half of the episode. It is just me, Riley, this time. That means it's time for another interview with an academic who actually knows what they're talking about, as opposed to us, um, you know, vaguely guessing, doing a Keir Starmer impression. I'm sure Milo probably did the Georgian Peter Griffin thing, and he seems to like that one. Um, so we're leaving all of that. We're leaving childish things behind us in the first half. And instead, uh, I'm going to have a conversation uh, with Dr. Gareth Fern, who is at the Environment, Education, and Development Faculty at the University of Manchester, who has, among others, written a new paper called Planning for the Public, Why Labor Should Support a Public Planning System. And one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to Gareth today was that every single party has, in, in every sense, promised, we are going to change Britain, we're going to resolve its productivity crisis, we're going to solve its affordability crisis, all these things by finally streamlining the planning system. Now, we've always tended to leave those things to the side, knowing intuitively that they're horseshit, but not necessarily knowing exactly why, other than then that they're being sold by, uh, I'd say, career charlatans. So to now help us understand what planning reform that would be worth the paper it's printed on would look like, easy sentence there, it is Gareth Fern. Gareth, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. I hope I can bring the uh, level of uh, decorum and uh, <laughs> uh, sort of astuteness that you set out at the beginning. It's a lot to live up to. <laughs> so uh, let's hear your best George and Peter Griffin. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I've been practicing all day. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so. Um, as I said, right, it costs enormous sums of money to build anything in the UK from a wind turbine to a section of train track. And much of that I think is commonly believed to come down to our frankly insane planning system. And I can also say as a big fan of techno, that planning frequently ends up closing my favorite venues and meaning I have to travel further and further out of town uh, in order to access the music that I like so well. Um, and I think going back to something I was saying at the beginning, we encounter whenever we look at these assessments of the UK's ills drawn up by people who often have no desire to fix them, so they say they will fix the planning system and everything will more or less right itself from there as private investment is unleashed, which has been held back by red tape. Um, and the universal fix for this, mostly on the Tory side, but also somewhat with some exceptions on the Labour side, is to, quote, streamline our inefficient planning system. So can you please tell me and our listeners, a little bit of what our planning system is look li look looking like now, why people think it might need streamlining, and how some of the ills that we experience are related to the what I find to be a frankly Kafkaesque nightmare of bureaucracy, but private bureaucracy. Yeah, so I think, I mean, yeah, that sort of project of streamlining planning is something that's been going on for about 40 years, and it gets brought up every maybe five or 10 years as a kind of project. 
uh, usually when there's a crisis of some sort or there's some sort of economic slowdown. Uh, for the exact reason you said, that kind of outline idea of like, yeah, we're going to unleash this market that's sort of hidden away and has been hitherto not um, able to produce housing or infrastructure or whatever it is, right? Um, uh, and they've actually tried to do that in the last maybe 10 years or so, and, and arguably that's created some of the problems we've had now. So um, ever since the Conservatives got in in 2010, they've been trying to find ways to kind of uh, streamline planning. So they've done so through um, national planning and policy was incredibly slimmed down from the previous Labour government in 2011-12, um, they've introduced what's called permitted development, which is, uh, or extended, sorry, not introduced, extended uh, permitted development, which is basically where you don't have to go through a full planning kind of committee to um, get a decision uh, on a site, uh, but into things like converting uh, uh, offices to residential, which has in turn led to like lots of very poor quality housing, particularly in London. So streamlining is something they've been doing anyway. But what they've also been doing, and this is probably speaks to the problems and the sort of mess that we have at the moment within planning, is also cutting significantly financially the budgets of planning departments. So 50% plus cuts to most planning departments. It's the biggest hit area of local government because it doesn't, you know, it's not something like social care, which you is much harder, which you have statutory sort of obligations to, and also that you, you know, obviously councils are less re- are more reticent to kind of cut back on. Um, so planning has taken the brunt of the sort of public sector local government cuts, which is, you know, the biggest <laughs> cuts section of the public sector as well, right? So it's like the the sort of most cut bit within the most cut bit. Uh, and that's also, in, you know, not just in terms of overall funding, but also in terms of like uh, paying conditions for people who work in planning. Uh, and really, actually, also perhaps most dramatically, it's been like privatisation of planning. So that's like um, planners, so there's RTPI, which is the professional body for planning. They they kind of every few years do a report on the planning profession and a few months ago their report said that um we've now got 50, over 50 percent of professional like planners work in the private sector they don't work exclusively in the private sector they often work within the public sector as well so they'll work on a contract doing policy for a council and then they'll work on another contract or in another team at some point later in the future putting applications <laughs> into planning departments right so all of these kind of things, I think, uh, the sort of deregulation, the privatisation, um, and also the sort of austerity, basically, all of these things have kind of combined to create a lot of the, like some of the problems you talked about at the beginning, right? Um, whether, you know, whether it's in housing, whether it's in infrastructure, whatever, it means that the basic stuff that the planning system, even as it's currently constituted, is supposed to do is very difficult. So like making a plan, for example, <laughs> which you would think is quite... That sounds like a basic task of <laughs> the planning system. Um, like most plans are going to be out of date in a year or so in the UK, like most local plans, like 70 odd percent. So like that, just that basic ability to be able to do those kind of functional things, even like the things, even from a really neoliberal perspective, right, of actually delivering planning decisions quickly. Well, most planning decisions, like 70 odd percent, again, were delivered within the government's timeframes 10 years ago. And now it's like 20% because there's just not enough people to do the job. Like, it's pretty straightforward why that's happened. Like, it's not a new development. Uh, sorry, it is a new development. It's not something that's been happening for a long time. And and just to, just to understand as well, right, like, what we're talking about is this is an explanation of the profusion of developments like one famously in Greenwich that had to then be torn down because it was... Give my understanding is that it was kind of given quite slapdash approval that didn't actually meet any of the other requirements of the area, or developers building buildings um, where they're able to wink and nudge at other planners saying, "Oh yeah, there's going to be half affordable housing," and then they're all sort of 
it's either a kayfabe or quite simply they're the developers are managing to buffalo the um sort of stretched thin planning staff so that they can once again have like in like in the in some of Battersea developments with like the sort of insane sky pool you know they're able to have um uh, uh, affordable housing that's still like 750,000 pounds for a two bed flat uh, that's accessed via a poor door. You know, yeah. you can see that in all of these senses, things are getting approved that have sort of no, either no basis in law or no basis in common sense. And I, I think you can very squarely lay it at the door of what you're describing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's like um, that kind of speaks to a kind of relative and increasing weakness of the public sector in this regard, right? So it's not to say that, like, and I certainly don't want to say this, and I don't think many of the authors on the paper that we did would are people that would argue that um, the planning system was great 10 years ago, right? Everything was fantastic and, you know, all the developments that were done then were fine and uh, et cetera. But there was at least like some capacity to contest or to shape um, decisions, even with that kind of more limited, even even within the kind of, you know, new labor years, there was still some potential for that to happen. Um, but now like the idea that the, you know, the, the only real times that we see, and this is probably the gener- genesis of like the sort of current debates uh, about NIMBYs and YIMBYs and such like that, is that the only time that you really see regularly people who are able to actually oppose a development is often very wealthy people uh, in the sort of like home counties or something like that trying to oppose housing development. But when it's a working class community... is stopping a p- piece of railway from being um, put down in their constituency. Yeah, that sort of thing. Whereas, you know, when you see like, um, I mean, I live in Manchester various like kind of working class communities trying to oppose um, various developments that they think are going to be disruptive to their area. Obviously they just get ignored, right? Most of it's by and large. So it, it, it uh, and then for, we've got ourselves in this position where the former people are kind of foregrounded as a problem. And there's the kind of main problem and main issue that needs to be sort of bypassed, I guess, within planning. Whereas actually what's simultaneously happening and, and indeed perhaps the reason that certain like think tanks use that kind of language is because actually a lot of the time developers are getting their way and they are um, uh, certainly in some certainly in like big cities like Manchester or London, like they certainly are getting their way and they certainly are producing things, whether it's like you say, shutting down nightclubs or which I appreciate it's not always developers, but it can be led by sort of new developments and then people move in and then they want the nightclub shut. Like, um, yeah, that process I think is an outgrowth of, or is at least, I think you could say at least very much intensified by the weakness of like planners, both, in their kind of um, quasi-judicial role, but also in like the actual process of making a plan and actually doing the hard and complicated work of like working with different people in a community, right? Which does take time and it takes money. And if you don't have that, then you're already starting from <laughs> a very difficult position if you're like at least more progressive in your sort of aims for a city or for a region or whatever. Yeah, so I, I'd like to talk as well about like what you describe mostly in the paper is what an actually functional planning system would look like, right? Because you talk about, um, I, I, I think I, I like the talking about this because I like to understand what a plan that is actually worthwhile would look like. And some of the points that you hit are to actually revitalize and reprofessionalize planning as a public sector activity, which to me speaks to a lot of kind of minimum requirements for any solution to the hollowing out of the UK public sector, it, whether you're talking about teaching, whether you're talking about um, uh, like like the, the, uh, the rail industry, like anything that we frequently talk about in all senses, we've decided to stop hiring and stop paying people enough. And so people aren't working in it. Um, and 
to be able to act as a public sector body, you need to have people and you need to have people who are qualified. Like I'm also put in mind of when we talked to um, yet another Gareth, uh, Gareth Davies, um, about the goings on in Thurrock Council, where, you know, some some basically people from the town had to sort of engage in asset management working against like sharks from the city in Mayfair, right? You're not going to be able to have um, a local government that say invests in the in the market that doesn't constantly get taken advantage of unless they're hiring those sharks. And I think it's the same thing with planning. We need to hire more more qualified um, to be to not to put too fine a point on it. Sharks who are able to actually um, significantly check developer ambitions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think like um, not to get too much into this, but like. You know, I've obviously I've worked in planning a few different planning schools, uh, universities, and like, you know, the universities are training people as planners, right? There's like <laughs> plenty of people still being trained, still, you know, fairly popular degree for young people to do. So, and it's like a professional qualification in most cases. So there are people being trained as professional planners, but then most of them go and work. And like, and I think I think a lot of them are being trained with it, with a kind of public sector ethos because most of the people training them were people who worked in the public sector years ago, usually. So. Yeah, in terms of like younger people, that is happening. But then, often, then what they do is they go and work in a consultancy, right? Uh, And um, you know, there are some consultancies that do better work than others. But like that, that you know, is a very different ethos. It's a very different way of thinking. Uh, And yeah, it's actually not always. It can be quite if you're not like you know, necessarily like the highest performer, for example. It can actually be a really unstable career, like in terms of contracts and um, you know, moving from one place to the other and that kind of thing. So. Yeah, and and I think that for me is what opens up this. Uh, as I sort of touched on before, it's it's you know it's both lacking the capacity to actually do the, the so the, as a consequence, the public sector lacks the kind of capacity to engage in the more complicated work of not just like you know signing off developments, but maybe like designing a uh, an area or locality that's like well connected or has like good community infrastructure or has like GPs and all these kind of things, right? Like you know, it has that kind of those kind of things can be factored in, which increasingly doesn't. You know, it's harder to do in terms of making a plan, a spatial kind of, you know, it, both in the sort of sense of mapping out where things go. I know it sounds very simplistic, but like just be able to do that properly as well as, uh, you know, policies and, you know, what you want to prioritize in an area and things like this. Right. As opposed uh, to just being like, oh, well, we hired the three best people at City Skylines and we're hoping that they'll be able to uh, <laughs> you know, create a functional community here. Yeah, but yeah. We- we also we talk about revitalizing planning as a profession and making mm-hmm. a public sector that can be adversarial and be challenging as yeah. well as actually just get stuff done. Yeah. We're also talking as well about um, you talk a great deal about democratizing planning. That means mm-hmm. ensuring gains from planning equally distributed. Um, and that right now, the planning profession, shock horror, serves largely to in, um, serve the interests of the extremely rich. So I'd like to just sort of take a step back and ask, how exactly does the planning system right now sort of just consistently give returns to the people who are already very wealthy? And what would a more democratic um, distribution of gains from planning actually look like? Um, yeah, well, I would say that like the, you know, the gains, and I guess this is probably an important point to mention when talking about planning any a lot of the time is that like <laughs> what the planning system is and can do, even you know, both ideally and in its current like you know form, um, 
it's, it's often attributed to be able to do things that it can't do, <laughs> or it's often like given too much priority and reasons things aren't working, right? So for example, like why the UK isn't building so much infrastructure? Well, it's because the government gave up on public investment for 10 years. That's why. That's why we don't have good electricity infrastructure. That's why we don't have good train infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. Like, like that's the core reason. And that, like um, planning is then used as an excuse for why those things haven't happened, right? So I think it's important just, just to firstly kind of like, and I would say the same in, in terms of like wealth and in terms of gains of, um, you know, people being able to make money off, off land, basically. You know, that, the reasons for that happening are much more external to planning. It's obviously to do with the financial crisis, quantitative easing, all these kind of background economic conditions, right, that are driving land prices up um particularly and obviously like you know speculation from um and planning is part of this i'm not trying to say planners aren't part of this particularly in terms of signing off like off plan sorry um uh buy to rent like huge <laughs> apartment blocks and things like this right like obviously planning is part of that um but that's the sort of driving thing what planning can do though even within this kind of uh, limited context and i guess we could say planning and local government more widely is through yeah trying to capture some of the gains that are being made right and Presently, that happens through what's called, which a lot of people probably have heard of in planning if they've heard of anything, which is called Section 106, which is uh, usually a negotiated um, agreement between a developer and a local authority to either provide sometimes money, but often it's like uh, social housing, right, or affordable housing, or even sometimes it could be like a park or something like that. It's it's an agreement that the developer will pay for or even do, um, even produce one of these things in order to offset the kind of impacts of their development now the problem with that system you know it, it, in some cases it can work but in uh a lot of the time obviously it can be negotiated down or it can be offered um it, and from what i understand <laughs> uh, uh you know there's a, i think there was, was it maybe it was a bbc documentary but uh there's this cans like property festival councils turn up there they try and get international investors to come to the city like this happens every couple of years i think and you know, one of the things that you can say is like, you know, off kind of off the record, oh yeah, well, you know, maybe the sexual monosix won't be as bad or something like this. So, and, you know, this is partly also a function of cities competing with each other as well, right, to try and attract inv- like global investment. So it, it's kind of flexible, right? And the government of, and then they, so the government introduced 10, 15 years ago, community infrastructure levy, which is basically a bit more rigid, uh, which councils can set out. Uh, and now they've introduced another levy or the framework for another levy recently, in the le- recent legislation. So they seem to be trying to make that a bit more solid. And that seems to be, I mean, I guess that's sort of moving in the right direction, but it still seems that like this money is either often just going in, maybe just going into, sometimes if it's money in terms of levies, just going into councils because they need the money anyway. So it's not necessarily just going to things that's needed. But it, It's kind of a stealth tax, which is again, fine, but it doesn't do the thing it's supposed to do. And so it gives, I think, it gives central government a way to say, hey, we're doing all of this stuff. And then local governments frequently have to like not deliver the thing in order just to deliver other things in a minimum level. Yeah. Well, it was designed at a time. Well, um, yeah. I mean, the first, the section 106 comes from 1990. So it was designed at a time when it's not exactly like local governments were amazingly funded then, but they were a lot better funded than they are now, right? It was based on an idea that we hadn't completely destroyed local government, I assume. So so now when you've got, you know, section 106 additional to like full local government funding, maybe that's, you know, not a disaster, but if you and you know these community levers as well but when you've taken so much money out putting this money in doesn't make a huge difference i don't think so yeah what we call for in our paper was a more like and i think this would even work for developers as well right it's not some necessarily some radical sort of position it's used in other countries as too either we didn't go into all the specifics because there's like a few different versions and it would have taken up too much time to debate them all 
um, of either land value tax or land, a more clearer kind of percentage land value capture system for, for like any sort of development or at least any development over a certain scale or value where you sort of say, right, you know, this is how much you get as a landowner. And what we're talking about particularly is what's called planning gain, which is where the value that you get from lands turning from what it was before into, you know, when it gets permission, it usually makes land more valuable, right? So it's how you capture some of that gain. Some of it can go to developers fine, but actually we need to have a much clearer sense of how much of that goes to the public. And that makes a more redistributive effect. And we're not being Georgists here, crucially, because we're talking specifically about land value taxes to offset problems created by high land values. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's capturing that rising land value for the public yeah. because it's not create. You know, people aren't creating that wealth by doing anything. Like they're, and, they're just getting it by accident. And and this and we're saying that planning is just one way we could possibly do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, through through land value capture specifically is something you could do through planning land values. We we talk within the paper about property like reforming council tax and property tax, which is obviously a local government thing. Um, so yeah, I mean that for you know that's a kind of wider kind of issue I think to do with it. And again, this comes back to planning and its kind of political space, right? Like obviously, and this is why we t- target the paper towards Labour because obviously the Conservatives are never going to do any of this, and uh, the government yeah, is likely Labour are going to do it either. But like you know, like. It, obviously, any of these kind of planning reforms would fit within, only make sense within a wider shift in local government. And, um, you know, an actual, you've got to want to redistribute wealth, basically. And obviously, at the moment, we don't. Well, we do upwards, but <laughs> not downwards. <laughs> I'll say this. As someone who was writing a, um, a paper targeting labor, you probably can't say that they're unlikely to do it either. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. Um, so the other thing we talked about, though, is making the process of planning more accountable, right? We're capturing the value, but also is it democratizing the gains, but also democratizing inputs. And this is mo- not about just allowing more veto players in, just but rather allowing, um, as you say, for example, much, much more consultation. So can you talk about what you think a better consultative process would look like? Or have I... Mis- have I uh, misportrayed you i'd say more like deliberative or democratic i guess in the sense of like you know consultations as they use now can be kind of like quite box ticky um i don't i'm not really sure if they're even that like often quite an elite thing i think particularly on a lot of issues like it's you know it's 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 for like established groups and stuff to sort of debate things which you know is fine whatever but i guess i would say that like so and this is probably important in terms of like the, the sort of opposing view or the proposed reform from the kind of more neoliberal, say, think tanks is that we move towards what's more, a more regulatory system rather than what we have at the moment, which is very discretionary, which means that decisions are taken at people's sort of judgment and discretion in either elected or sort of public officials uh, to a more regulatory system like they have in, say, France or the US, where it's uh, more sort of rules up front. Now, the reason that we have local plans so important um, was because this was a compromise made in 1990 to allow some of that more regulatory approach in whereby the plan is the sort of defining, allows allows developers or anyone else to look at something and go, okay, well, this is what we can do here. These are the things we're allowed to do. These are the things they're going to encourage us to do, et cetera, et cetera. That's kind of the idea. Um, so for me, like the kind of democratic aspect enhancing really is in that bit, is in that bit of that's where the work can go in. That's where you can have like these kind of antagonistic discussions about, you know, and, and obviously local officials and elected officials and, and the public can then decide what it is you know, they want to do. And then obviously the costs and benefits of doing that, right? If you don't want to build new housing, okay, fine. But then like, you know, what's going to happen to your like schools or to your, you know, your area if like people can't live there, like, or families can't live there, et cetera. Like, so I think there's, I think, I think that is where you have a better democratic 
um, opportunity. And I think that's where, and you know, but again, as, as I was kind of emphasizing before, that requires work, right? Because that requires not only like um, the process of developing those plans and policies, but also requires like, actually, you've got to actively go and find people to get them involved because, you know, people aren't just walking into planning meetings, you know, it's only a certain type of person who tends to do that. So that requires like, again, significant resources and work to actually do that properly. And, you know, in the past, like, there have been sort of reasonable attempts to do that. They've not always been perfect, but, like, it's not like that's some sort of, um, you know, unfathomable, like, process. Like, and again, other people in other countries do do this. So it's not, like, impossible. This comes back down, I think, to building public capacity, right? Which is, in order to go and get people, as you say, you can't just wait for them to come to you because the only people who are constantly paying attention to that and coming to you are either landlords or insane, um, like, you know, Tory landowning um, NIMBYs who want to stop trains being built, if you get my meaning. Yeah. Um, so how, and, and this comes back to, as we say, actually making the public sector work again, which is going to require, as you say, actually hiring people, actually um, giving them a, a, a remit to engage with the public and do things in the public interest, which is so far away from where we've come, where we come from, or maybe really ever have been in quite a long time. Um, and this is where I think we want to come to come back to what other what otherwise is suggested to fix the planning system by the mainstream parties, which is to streamline it. Really, what you're saying is needed is a significant bulking up, but to make it better rather than to make it disappear. Yeah, I think so. I mean, like, I mean, like, I think what's developed, and this, this is, this is actually prior to the the coalition of the conservatives. I think this was happening in the Labour too, which is the, yeah, I would say it's kind of like there's a lot of bureaucracy, but a lot of it's it's very, it, it's kind of box ticking, right? A planning process becomes more box ticking, which is in the sense of like, okay, we have to do this thing, we have to do this review, we have to do this assessment, we have to do that, and that kind of goes on forever. But like, that's actually not. I mean, I've sat and watched and um, you know researched, analysed several multiple like different planning decisions and actually like you know that's it's, it's almost like a bit of a charade sometimes like it's like they go through the motions but what decides the issue is actually just to do with you know um you know say on fracking for example like yeah there was lots of like technical issues discussed about uh, noise and pollution all these kind of things but at the end of the day like it was the fact that it was there was clear issues with the process and that people in the area worried about it. And that's eventually why they ended up rejecting it. Right. And that's fine. Like, I don't, I don't have a problem with that. I think that's perfectly reasonable. Like, like people have like substantive disagreements about what can be done with land. And I think the problem with the, I don't think there's an easy way out of that, but I, what I don't agree with is this kind of very neoliberal perspective that you can just hide those things away and just pretend they don't exist and just come up with a way of bypassing all of those like antagonisms. Right. And those the real like disagreements, like, um, what you need to do is try and think of a way to have those more constructively and in ways that we can, you know, and some people will win and some people will lose at the end of the day. But like, I think we can do that. And we, we can't just pretend those things don't exist because then obviously all that happens is that, you know, it'll be the developers that win, right? Like, so effectively what we're saying is um, uh, a, a bulky and powerful planning system that's um, able to actually uh, stand in the way of an inf- and influence development. Great. When do we get one? Effectively. <laughs> I think it's more like what I say about the importance of actual plan making, I guess, is that 
you know, if if you, I think if you had better and more substantive like plans and you were able to do it in a more sort of inclusive way, then it would be a lot easier to turn around to people and say no, or like to you know either either people are objecting for like sort of trivial reasons, right? Like if it's like say the kind of archetypal NIMBY in the home counties, if you've had a sort of uh, I don't know a wider discussion in the kind of wider region, so you could you know we talk about regional planning in there. That's that's a huge problem that we don't have that I think in the UK, but. Uh, or in the wider county, in the case of say, oh, I don't know, Oxfordshire or something. Um, like, if you've if if that has then led to a set of principles about how much housing needs to be developed, and like that's been sort of developed as a policy, and there's areas, you know, you talk about areas that you would like it to happen, and you have to discuss that not on an individual basis, but you have to discuss that on a regional basis or a county basis. That becomes a bit of a different issue, doesn't it? Because you're not just arguing about whether this one thing can happen. And then if someone comes and objects this to housing, that you've had this like two year planning process to you know plan making process. Well, that's tough. Like, unless they've got a really good reason. <laughs> like, but it, I, think, I think if you're just doing that to people without that basis, that that that's when it becomes a lot more fraught and a lot more, yeah, a lot more like a lot more like they. Well, I guess they have some basis for saying that they're just being stomped upon, right? Rather than um, there being some sort of much stronger foundation, democratic foundation for you having to say, "Well, I'm sorry, but you're just going to have to put up with this inconvenience for a period of time." <laughs> <laughs> so. I think before we end here, you know, I want to um, I want to talk about another thing that is, I think, a, a real uh, important motivator to deprivatize and re-regulate planning. This is from your planning and climate section. What you say: the problem of flooding is emblematic of the privatization and deregulation of planning. A focus on simply adding additional housing units is resulting in developments completely unsuited to the changing climate. And the annual sight of people being ferried away from their homes in dinghies should make it clear that the planning system desperately needs to be reformed towards a public system that has the right skills and resources to act strategically. And I mean, I think that's the, that's the vision I think we can leave ourselves on, right? Which is, we talk all the time on the show about whether or not something is go- some measure, some measure is going to be enough to deal with whatever crises are going to come down the pipe. And I think we can just say for any reform of the planning system, will this meaningfully stop people from being put in dinghies when their homes are flooded? Or will it allow developers to profit off of homes that will one day be required to be um, emptied via dinghy? Yeah, that's right. I think that's it. We can set that up as a metric and as a test for all future proposals. I think it might actually, uh, yeah, we could go a long way with that at least. Um, <laughs> um, it's the, the patented trash future dinghy test. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's it. That's all we need, actually. I don't know. We've wasted half an hour, really. We could have just started, started to finish with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anything less, not worth the paper it's printed on. Uh, so I think that about wraps up this half episode, but... Gareth, I just want to thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. Um, I found it very interesting to be able to have much more evidence for my contempt of people hand-waving that they'll streamline the planning system. I always knew it was bullshit. I'm glad to know why. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure and thanks for inviting me on. It's been great. Thanks. All right. Well, I'm going to hand back uh, to past slash... Well, past for you, future for me um, (laughs) of the uh, TF team for the sign-off. Bye, everybody. Ah, well, thank you very much to Dr. Gareth Fern for talking to me. What a conversation. Uh, I didn't have much to say, but it was great. Yeah. Always a reliably great time when we talk to an academic named Gareth. Mm. That's true, actually. It is 100% hit rate on academics yeah. named Gareth. If you are an academic named Gareth yeah. and you want to Gareth's, be on the podcast. Gareth's, maybe it's anyone called Gareth. You could get Gareth Gates on. Ooh, get yeah. Ga- Gareth Future. Anyway, yeah, anyway. there you go. Um, we have a Patreon. It is $5 a month to subscribe. However, mm. we're going to keep saying this. 
It will be more expensive if you subscribe from within the iOS app. Subscribe not from within the iOS app, or it will cost yeah. more because I mean, we'll see how antitrust goes. But Apple is trying yeah. to leverage its market power, so please yeah. do not do that. Tim Apple will take some of your money if you subscribe on like w- within the app. It's like from like March. If you have an existing subscription but that you subscribe before, then it, it shouldn't increase. But if it, if you subscribe, I think it's from March. This is Googleable information, but it's gonna they're gonna put like a thirty percent surcharge on it. So our recommendation is subscribe directly on the Patreon website or through other apps. Yeah, that you may anything use. else you want. So yeah. Aside from that, uh, I also want to say thank you very much for listening. Um, we're looking forward to another year of being in your ears. Mm. So we will see you on the bonus episode, which was a Balthazar that Milo and I just recorded earlier today with yeah. Tom Walker and Demi Lardner. This was so, my fourth podcast of the day. Yeah, Oof. absolutely. So Oof. we will see you in a few days. Bye, bro. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.